Well, how has God changed your life for good through trials? I'm sorry, I forgot the scripture, didn't I? Thank you for calling my attention to that. We're doing things differently today because the, the passage is so long. Uh, Genesis 40 and 41, our scripture reading is through the passage. So thank you. I'm sorry, Raina. Raina's going to come up here and read Genesis 40 for us, and then I'll come up and I'll pray again, and we'll go and start over. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to read for um, Genesis 40. So sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody and his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cups in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore to you your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that this should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There was three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of it, of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head and the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Thank you, Rain. I was just so excited. Just jumped up here. So thank you for reading through Genesis 40 for us this morning. Genesis 40 and 41 are where we're going to be this morning. And in Genesis 40, we got to see there a picture of Joseph in the middle of his trial. But I wonder in your life, Christian, and I asked you this a second ago, so you had a moment to think about it. How has God changed your life for good through trials? We don't often think of trials being uh, something that is good. We think of that as a hardship, right? Uh, a trial means maybe you're having a physical difficulty. You're going through a hard time physically where you've lost your health. You're experiencing pain. A trial could be a financial trial where you're having a difficult time paying the bills, where you're unemployed or underemployed. You've been praying and you're waiting for God to provide. Well, how can you look back, Christian, on your life at those trials and see how God brought good in your life from those trials. You know, I think about me and my family even being here in, in Charlotte. It came about through one of the most difficult trials I faced as a child. I've shared this before with you a couple years ago. 
Uh, but my family went through a significant trial in the early 1990s. That's how old I am. When I was in the 1990s, early 1990s, I was in middle school. And it was that time that we had been living a pretty comfortable life. My dad came home from work one day, and they had shut down the entire regional office for his computer corporation in Tampa, Florida. If you're old enough to remember this, that was the recession of the early 1990s. Well, the technology sector typically gets hit first in a recession. So if you lose your job with the technology sector, it's going to be a hard time finding jobs. All kinds of companies were downsizing. And it led us into a situation where we had been living a pretty comfortable life, and all of a sudden, we were in a situation where my dad was unable to find employment. Now, the only reason we were living in Tampa, Florida, is because that's where my dad had a job transfer. Uh, he and my mom had met and were married here in Charlotte. All their family was here in Charlotte. And the Lord used that hardship and trial to bring us back to Charlotte, which I was not happy about in the ninth grade. I liked living in Tampa. I liked living close to the ocean. I had all my friends there. I wanted to grow up and go to the Florida State University. I had all my plans set. That's where I wanted to be and where I wanted to live. But God had other plans. And I think about all the things that he orchestrated that have been such good gifts in my life. To how he worked in my life in college at UNC Charlotte, to how he crossed my path with my wife Carrie. We'll celebrate 20 years of, of being married here this fall, just in a few weeks. We crossed paths uh, in South Carolina on a summer beach project that we were both a part of as students, and even being here serving as pastor. I didn't like that trial as a ninth grade. I didn't enjoy it. I wondered often, why would God let something difficult like that happen to our family? But like many of us, we look back at trials and say, oh, this was God's wisdom. This is what he was doing good. That trial wasn't pleasant. We don't celebrate that trial, but we celebrate the God who reigns over that trial. We celebrate his blessing and his wisdom that we see and the grace that he gives us to persevere in those trials. Well, in our study of the book of Genesis, we've been looking at the life of Joseph. His story is one that highlights the providence of God. Joseph, a living illustration that God is good and God is in control. You and I have the advantage of knowing how the story of Joseph ends. We can read it. Even if you're here this morning and you, you've heard, you're hearing this for the first time, you can read ahead and see what happens in the life of Joseph. He didn't know how his story was going to end when he was in prison. He trusted God. He trusted God's direction in his life, yet he was waiting and he was suffering. You see, God's providence speaks to the truth that through the almighty, everywhere present power of God, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This morning we look in Genesis 40 and 41, and we see God's good plan unfolding in the life of Joseph. And God's good plans, they come about as Joseph walked the path of trial and suffering. The main idea that I want us to see in these two chapters this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The main idea is this. God's good providence teaches us to be patient and strengthens us to persevere. God's good providence teaches us to be patient and strengthens us to persevere. If you haven't already done so, turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible in front of you. Turn to Genesis 40, which is on page 33 of that Pew Bible, page 33. And if you don't own a Bible, we want you to use that Bible this morning and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you, that's a gift that's not just offered this morning, but any Sunday, you can have that Bible, take it home with you, and we'd love to connect you with someone here that can read the Bible with you. Just talk to one of our members around you or see one of our pastors at any of the doors on your way out. We'd love to connect you with someone that could read the Bible with you. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 40 this morning, and then we're going to go through chapter 41 all the way to verse 45 of chapter 41 this morning. A little bit of context as we pick back up here in Genesis. As we've followed the life of Joseph, we've seen a lot of difficulties and trials. We've seen him go from the pit that his brothers, his own brothers, threw him into and sold him into slavery. And he went from that pit, by God's grace, to Egypt, where through God's favor and blessing in the midst of suffering, he was put in charge of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was a captain of the army there, of the guard there, of Pharaoh in Egypt. And then when he was faced with temptation, 
He did what was right. He didn't give in to temptation. He fled from it. Yet he had wrong done to him by Potiphar's wife, who made a false accusation against him that landed him in prison. Yet through all of that, all the pain, all of the hardship, all of the injustice, the Lord was with him the whole way. And that changed everything in the life of Joseph. God was at work to do good to him. We see in his story, God is good. God is in control. That's the two elements of God's providence. He's good. He is in control. And the response of his people, if we submit to him, is that we trust him and we wait. We're going to break down that main idea into two points this morning. And we'll see two ways that we exercise faith in trials. So trials are they're opportunities for us to walk by faith. We'll see two ways we exercise faith in trials. The first way we'll track all through chapter 40. So in chapter 40, we see God's good providence teaches us to be patient. God's good providence teaches us to be patient. Now, the Lord had been with Joseph in prosperity, and the Lord was with him in adversity. It wasn't like the Lord pulled away when Joseph was going through adversity. He was with them the whole time. And while Joseph sat in an Egyptian prison, a victim of injustice, the Lord was still with him. We see in verse 1 of chapter 40 the phrase, sometime after this. Now, we don't know exactly how much time Joseph spent in prison, but we can look ahead to the next chapter. We see in the next chapter that he was 30 years old when he came to reign in Egypt. So it had been 11 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. This was how he was spending his 20s. Sold into slavery, sitting in prison. Probably not how he pictured or imagined his life. Betrayed by his brothers, away from his father and his family, in a foreign land. Now being in a foreign land can be hard enough on its own to adjust to new culture and language and a new way of life. But being in a foreign land in prison wrongfully accused and imprisoned. Think about the hardship of all of that. Yet the Lord was with him through all of that, and he didn't lose his faith. Now, remember back from chapter 20, chapter 37, rather, God had given Joseph two dreams back in chapter 37. Both of these dreams pointed to him having a place of honor among his family that his brothers would bow down to. Now, they weren't really happy to hear that dream from Joseph, but that was the dream that came from Joseph, and we see that it ended up coming true. That, that was God's will being revealed. But how would that happen with him sitting in prison? How would he even see his family again if he's stuck in Egypt in prison? At this point in his life, those dreams, they seem so far from being realized, they almost seem impossible that they would come to be fulfilled. But he would have to wait. He'd have to wait in prison. That waiting would require patience and faith in the midst of adversity. Now, these 11 years, they were a long test of Joseph's faith. And we get a glimpse of the result of his tested faith here as two prisoners join him, the king's cupbearer and the king's baker. Now, we don't get all the details why these two guys were thrown into prison, but these two prisoners, they came from an important place. So the cupbearer to the king and the baker for the king, they would have been over Pharaoh's food and drink. What that meant was nothing could make its way to Pharaoh without their oversight. They likely would have been in charge of the entire supply line and everyone that worked to bring food and drink to Pharaoh. They were there to protect him. That If any enemies wanted to try to poison him, to assassinate him, they were kind of like secret service agents for Pharaoh. They were trusted individuals, right? So the cupbearer would have been more than just a guy to taste the drink. He would have been in charge of a lot and likely would have been a confidant to Pharaoh. Now, whatever it was that happened, they were both thrown into prison. And the last chapter ended with God showing favor to Joseph in prison, and he was placed in charge of his fellow prisoners. So when these two guys arrived, Joseph attended to them. Now, when they both had bad dreams, Joseph noticed they were troubled. And there, verses 7 and 8, he asks them, 
Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. Now, the Egyptians had a belief that their gods, their false gods, would give them dreams as a means of revelation. And the interpretations in their society were left to their wise men and to their magicians to interpret the dreams. Well, these guys were in prison. They didn't see any wise men or magicians around, so they were troubled by these dreams, and they thought that they had no one there to interpret them. And Joseph uses this moment to speak of his God. At the end of verse 8 comes a declaration of Joseph's faith. Look at verse 8 in a question. Do not interpretations belong to God? The scene here, he's talking to two Egyptians about his God, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's telling them interpretations belong to God, the God of Israel. Knowledge belongs to God. The future belongs to God, not to your false gods, to the only true God, the God of of Israel. Now, Joseph knew something about dreams, right? He believed, that, that he believed God, and he believed that, that God's revelations in the two dreams that he had received was God's Word. Joseph's confident that his God held the future. Joseph was confident that his God held the truth. So in this moment, there's something more than just Joseph helping comfort them when they had some nightmares. That's not what's happening here. In this moment, something greater is happening. Joseph was putting his God up against the gods, the many gods of Egypt, the one true God amongst the false gods. Now, the testimony of the Bible is consistent. In all 66 books, there is only one God. Consistent, Old Testament and New. The Bible acknowledges other religions. It acknowledges the existence of other gods, lowercase g. And and what is the first commandment that God gave to Moses in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other what? Gods before me. There's only one true God. The Bible is consistent that his identity is not up for grabs. You can't just call him whatever you want to call him. He's revealed himself. He's revealed who he is. He's revealed what he is like. He's revealed himself in creation. We've seen that in the book of Genesis. And then he drew near and revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And the Old Testament anticipates how God would reveal himself in a special way in the New Testament. That God, we worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. The apostle Peter proclaimed about Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, the testimony of the Bible is consistent. There's only one God. And God is found in Jesus Christ. You do not have the Father, God the Father, if you do not believe in the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And throughout the Bible, you'll see position the one true God amongst the, amongst the many false gods and pitted against them. We'll see this later in the Old Testament with Elijah on Mount Carmel. God will not give his glory to false gods. And here we see the very beginning of a rivalry here on a world stage in Egypt that began in a prison cell. The situation here, Joseph displayed the power of God through interpreting these dreams. Now, the cupbearer and the baker, they had two different dreams that came on the same night, and the chief cupbearer decided to share his dream first. In verses 9 through 11, his dream involved three branches, and Joseph's interpretation, no doubt, given to him by God there in verses 12 and 13, the branches, the three branches, symbolized three days. In three days, you will be out of prison and restored back to your job with Pharaoh. And Joseph is so sure of this that he gives the cupbearer a request in verse 14, which really is something important to know in this chapter, the request in verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. That was his request. Now, all of us have got the chief baker 
excited as, as well to have his dream interpreted. And in verse, verses 16 through 17, we read that his dream involved three cake baskets on his head. So those baskets contained food, probably bread and pastries, but birds were eating out of those baskets. Unlike the cupbearer, his dream doesn't show a happy future. In verses 18 through 19, Joseph's interpretation, these three baskets, they also symbolize three days. But in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. God gave Joseph these interpretations, and they happened just as he said they would. In verses 20 through 22, three days later, Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he executed the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now, the cupbearer was free. He saw the power of Joseph's God. Would this be the break that Joseph had been waiting for 11 years since he was sold into slavery? Would this be his break to get out of prison? I mean, he had this opportunity with the cupbearer. You might have imagined he was getting excited about this opportunity. Surely this guy saw that God was with him, and he had one request, remember me. But the chapter ends on a disappointing note in verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph may have been forgotten by people, but he wasn't forgotten by God. He wasn't forsaken by God. The Lord was with him the whole time. The Lord was with him while he waited. Even behind what seems like a frowning providence, God had a smiling face to do good to him. Again, we have the advantage of knowing how the story ends. And again, if this is your first time hearing this story, I'm so glad you're here to hear this this morning. But you could just turn ahead one chapter and you can see how the story ends. In fact, we'll go there in just a few moments. But what seemed like a series of setbacks in Joseph's life, they weren't setbacks at all. They were all a part of God advancing his plan. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, that's why it's good for us to learn about God's providence. You see, God's providence, as we considered last week in the Heidelberg Catechism, it points to good things for us to learn. Among them, God's providence teaches us to be patient in adversity, patient in hard seasons of our lives. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. You see, trials often reveal how much we have to grow in our faith. In God's providence, they also reveal how much He has grown us in our faith. You see, the question in our trials, Christian, is not, is the Lord with us? The question is, will we trust Him? Will we wait for Him? Will you trust Him when you have to wait? When's the last time you had to wait 11 years for something? Spoiler alert, he doesn't have to wait just 11. There's two more years, 13 years. It's easy to grow bitter. It's easy to grow anxious. It's easy to give in to fear. But Joseph is an encouragement to us to be patient. God is good. God is in control. You see, trials are typically out of our control. We wish they were in our control. We wish that our wisdom and our strength could get us out of those trials. But we have to remember those trials are never out of God's control. We regularly get surprised by circumstances in our lives. I tell you, as a pastor, I get phone calls. I got a couple this week with different people having different challenges. I prayed earlier for Walter Schultz, who was in a, uh, a head-on car collision on his drive home from Asheville yesterday. And by God's grace, he seems to be in fine condition, stable condition. But those circumstances regularly catch us off guard. I know his wife wasn't expecting to get that phone call. As his pastor, I wasn't expecting to get that phone call as I was preparing to eat dinner last night, but God's never surprised. He's never caught off guard. He's never out of control. We turn to Him. We, we trust Him. You see, faith looks to the one who reigns and rules above our trials. Faith, I've heard it put like this, is our ongoing confidence that God will provide. Now, we're here being patient and waiting. Let me, let me clarify. Waiting does not mean being idle. 
just sitting still. You see, Joseph's waiting involved being faithful in what God had given him. He was waiting when he was put in charge of Potiphar's house, and he was faithful. He proved himself to be a faithful worker. He was a faithful witness where those around him saw that God was with him. He was faithful in temptation. He fled from Potiphar's wife and fled temptation. And then when he went to prison, he proved to be faithful in prison as well. He wasn't in a place of just bitter resentment or turning away from God or or quitting and believing God and His promises. He proved to be faithful. Christian, what does faithfulness look like for you this week? Some of you are going through trials. You're going through difficult trials. But as we wait, we're called to worship, to serve God, to obey Him. Yeah, I think of examples of our members coming to our church. I was talking with one member this week who's mourning the, the loss of a loved one. And I said, you know, sometimes there'll be members of our church who they feel like they're in such a place of sadness and grief, and, and maybe even the temptation sometimes can be, I, I don't want to come to church. It's hard to be around people who all seem happy, and I'm going through this difficulty, and, and who can relate with me? I certainly understand those feelings. But I spoke to her, I said, a lot of times I sit right over here on this side pew, at least before I get up to preach. And I look around, I get a view of you all. And sometimes you may wonder, why is he looking at me? Well, I'm just looking to see who's here. It's encouraging to see you all sing and to hear you sing. But I, I know you. I know your stories. I know your testimonies. I know your difficulties. We're praying for many of you. And what an encouragement it is for me to see people who are here praising God and worshiping God as they're suffering. I think about our, our, one of our sisters, Vera Hearn, Vera, I know you might get embarrassed by me bringing you up right now, but Vera, it was such an encouragement to see you as you were going through chemotherapy, sitting up in the balcony, praising and worshiping God. You may not have realized what a powerful testimony that was and how that served members of our church, that by God's grace, though you were going through a difficult time full of a lot of uncertainty, you kept believing, kept worshiping, kept serving. What a powerful testimony that is, that God's people need to hear. Brothers and sisters, we've all got work to do. And it may just be the simple work of getting up and coming on Sunday morning to obey God and worship Him. You know, some of the most important work we can give ourselves to while waiting is praying. You see, waiting and praying go hand in hand. In fact, when we pray, we lift up a request and we wait. We wait for God to answer. Sometimes we have to wait a long time. Think about this, when we pray for physical relief from injury or or illness, sometimes God doesn't answer that right away, and you have to wait. It may be some time before we know relief. Some of you have been praying in financial difficulty. You're still waiting for God to provide that, that employment for you, to be able to pay your bills without wondering where the money is going to come from. Maybe you'll struggle for some time even more with that. Some of you are praying for a spouse, and you're waiting. Some of you are praying for children, and you're waiting. Waiting's hard, yet it is the posture of the Christian life, because you know what every Christian in this room is waiting for? The return of Jesus. That doesn't mean we're idle until Jesus returns. It doesn't mean we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and just expect bad things to happen and We'll get through it somehow. No, we, we wait and we pray and we work and we seek to obey and we look to the Lord for strength and wisdom and help and we lock arms with one another on our way to heaven. We lock arms with one another to encourage each other and build each other up. We wait, we work, we pray. And waiting is hard when we go through trials. But brother and sister of the Lord, may we look at the story of Joseph and be reminded that in our trials and in our trouble, God can run our lives so much better than we can. His plans for us, they are so much better than the plans we have for ourselves. May we look to Him and remember His good providence, that His fatherly hand is always at work. And may we seek to be strengthened, to trust Him, for the grace to be patient and wait for Him. Well, a second way we exercise faith in times of trouble, we can find in chapter 41, verses 1 through 45. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 45, here's what we see. God's good providence strengthens us to persevere. God's good providence strengthens us to persevere.
Now, Joseph had been waiting for 11 years, and then a glimmer of hope came with Pharaoh's cupbearer being a cellmate, and Joseph interpreting his dream with God's help, yet the cupbearer forgot him. Now, we're going to make our way through this chapter as we go, but what we'll see here is that Joseph would wait two more years. So now we're at the 13-year mark, 13 years of waiting, 13 years by God's grace of perseverance and trusting God. God had given him two dreams back in chapter 37 that one day he would be the ruler of his family, yet here he sat in prison, almost half of his young life waiting. And then this opportunity came again in chapter 41 through some dreams. We see in verses 1 through 8 the story takes a turn when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had some bad dreams. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Let me read through this section of 41 for us. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Two bad dreams and one night. And the elements that we see in both of these dreams, they all pointed to, there were signs of the strength of Egypt. The Nile River, cattle and, and grain, those were all symbols of the strength of Egypt. They were the world power, a mighty and wealthy nation. And these dreams used these symbols to show that their strength their worldly goods would fail them. Their gods would fail them. It's the message of these dreams to Pharaoh. Your goods and your gods will fail you. And the first glimpse we get of Egypt's power failing them is at the end of verse 8, where we read that none of the magicians, none of the wise men in Egypt could interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. And with no one to interpret them, finally, in verse 9, Two whole years after they last saw each other in prison, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Let's look at verses 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. We're hearing this report of Joseph interpreting dreams correctly. That's enough for Pharaoh. Remember, this cupbearer would have been a trusted confidant. So in verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. Now that phrase, sent and called, it's the same phrase that was used back in verse 8 when Pharaoh sent and called for all the magicians and wise men in Egypt. But they failed to interpret his dreams. So Pharaoh sending and calling for Joseph, it continues this rivalry. Their gods, the false gods of Egypt, against the one true God, the God of Israel. Let's pick up reading in verses 14 through 24. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. 
Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fled in, and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. In verse 16, we see there the highlight of the whole story. When Pharaoh pointed to Joseph as having the power to interpret dreams, Joseph corrects him. And Joseph makes it clear to Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Again, in the last chapter, we saw Joseph telling the cupbearer and baker that interpretations belong to God. Two years later, he maintains the same posture and he has the same message. It's not me, but God. That's a picture of perseverance and faith. Not two years of bitterness. Not two years of anger. Not two years of doubting God. Two years later, he's got the same message and the same posture. We see that he perseveres in giving God glory, which goes hand in hand with persevering in faith. Joseph doesn't put himself forward as the hero. He exalts as God. God would get the glory in Egypt. God would get the glory among the nations. God indeed would reveal what this dream means. Let's keep reading in verses 25 through 32. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. The two dreams, they have one meaning. The seven cows and the seven ears of grain represent seven years. The interpretation of what we read here from God through Joseph, Egypt will have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. You need to know that famine in the land of Egypt would have sounded crazy to them. You didn't have famine in Egypt. It was a mighty, powerful nation. They had the Nile River. The most precious resource in that day, water. And they had free-flowing water. They could water their cattle. They could water and grow, gain, uh, grow grain. rather. Often the, the banks of the Nile would overflow. So to stand there and say, you're going to have seven years of famine. We don't even know what that's like. We have one weekend where snow gets forecast and everyone buys all the bread and milk and eggs, right? And we go crazy and we're worried about it. This is seven years of not having food. That would have sounded crazy, most likely, to the Egyptians standing there. But Joseph passed on what God had shown him. It was a bit risky. How would Pharaoh receive that? Would he be pleased with this, or would he think this was utter nonsense and actually have him executed? Well, Joseph trusted God. He stood on God's Word. Remember, these interpretations weren't his he wasn't trying to figure out, what are these crazy cows? What do they mean? All this, this weird stuff, like, what does this mean? No, he said interpretations belong to God. God has shown this. He trusted God. Notice at the beginning, the middle, and the end of his message when he speaks, he mentions God. In verse 25 at the beginning, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. In the middle, in verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. At the end, in verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that it is fixed by God 
and God will shortly bring it about. That, that duplication meaning it will be fulfilled, just like the two dreams Joseph had from chapter 37. He keeps speaking about God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Joseph is interpreting this dream to Pharaoh, he is proclaiming his God, exalting the one true God over the false gods of Egypt. In a form like a prophet, he lays this out. This is what God is going to do. God has revealed it will happen. You will not be able to stop it or prevent it. And having delivered the meaning of the dream, Joseph, proclaiming this was sure to happen, that it was fixed by God, gives Pharaoh advice. Look at verses 33 through 36. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph was so sure this would come to pass that he calls for action that would save Egypt from the famine. Again, this guy just got pulled out of prison. They had to shave him and clean him up. He just got out. He's telling the most powerful human being alive at that time, most likely, here's what you need to do. Here's what needs to happen. He calls Pharaoh to make plans in light of God's plans. Two-part plan. First, he advises Pharaoh, save 20% of your crops during those seven plentiful years. And next, he advises Pharaoh, pick a wise and discerning man to oversee this. And Pharaoh didn't laugh at him. He didn't throw him out of his presence and order him back to prison or order him to be executed. Rather, Pharaoh was pleased. Let's look there in verses 37 through 45. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage, and he gave him in marriage a Seneth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh was pleased with what Joseph shared. Just like Potiphar in, in prison, and the Potiphar and the prison keeper before him, Pharaoh saw that Joseph's God was with him. And he put him in charge. He reasoned there in verse 38, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, keep in mind, Pharaoh was a polytheist, which means he, he likely believed in many gods. So I don't think this was a statement of faith, him trusting the God of Israel. I think he likely is just saying, sure, I'll welcome in another God. This seems like nice to me, which isn't actually believing God. Uh, again, God's commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 45, verse 5, we read, I am the Lord, and there is no other God. So I don't believe this is Pharaoh having faith in God. It's still an interesting moment that the Pharaoh of Egypt is now speaking about the God of Israel. This helps us see God was doing something so much greater than Joseph's small story. A plan was unfolding for God to bring himself glory there in Egypt, the world power using it as his stage. You see, God's glory worked hand in hand with the good of Joseph. And while people meant things for evil against Joseph, God meant everything for good and God meant everything for his own glory. I mean, how would Egypt have known about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one true God? How would they even know his name apart from this moment? And God would soon use this moment to show that deliverance and salvation come 
only from him. Not only is Joseph set free from prison, that's wonderful, but he was put in charge of all of Egypt. His humiliation came before his exaltation. Prison clothes were traded for royal wear, the signet ring, clothing him in fine linen, even the gold chain around his neck, which is still in style. Those were all symbolic of of royalty and power. And then in verse 43, Joseph got to ride in the second chariot. He's riding in a royal parade. Only Pharaoh would be over him in all of the land. Pharaoh even gave him an, an Egyptian name in verse 45 that is thought to mean God speaks and lives. Joseph went from humiliation to exaltation, from prison to a place of honor, yet he would not use this honor to exalt himself, but rather to exalt his God. His actions would end up not only saving Egypt, but would save other nations, including his family, the nation of Israel. His dreams from chapter 37 were getting nearer and nearer to being realized. He had to wait a long time, spending his young adult life in slavery and in prison, yet God was with him through all of it. And he trusted God and patiently waited, persevering through temptation and trials and ongoing tests of his faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this story shows us that our hard days are not necessarily bad days. Sometimes we think about and we account for days as good days or bad days. But consider, even in those days that seem bad, They're really just more hard than they are bad. For our God's good, and He's working for our good. So I'd maintain to you, even in the days that seem bad to us, our bad days are days that God is working for our good. The 13 years that Joseph was waiting, they were not wasted. God was at work in Joseph. I mean, by the time we get to chapter 41, it seems like a different person. I don't think it's just because he's older. I think it's because he's grown and matured in his faith. We see a picture of mature faith, of wisdom. He showed compassion on his fellow prisoners. He he noticed that they were troubled and moved in to help and minister to them. His pain wasn't wasted. Christian, your pain is never wasted either. Your trials have a purpose. They often don't feel like it. They often don't seem like it. We often want to know what is the purpose of these trials. Sometimes we may see even a a glimmer of those purposes. Time goes on, like I mentioned to you at the beginning of my sermon. Brothers and sisters, we often won't know the purpose to our trials until we get to glory. What we can know, God is good. God is in control. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is assurance that God is doing good to you. Sometimes we may wrongly think, That the good life means avoiding problems, as if that is even possible in this life. But Joseph's story shows us that godliness comes in and through our problems, not by avoiding them. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it reminds me of our time in James. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our trials, the testing of our faith, if the Holy Spirit is in you, it brings about steadfastness or perseverance. You keep believing, keep trusting, you keep worshiping, you keep serving, you keep rejoicing, not in your circumstances, but in the God who rules above our circumstances. You see, these trials that we face, Christians, we can think differently about our trials than anyone else in the city of Charlotte. You can think differently about your trials, that God is over our trials and God is with us in them. He's sovereign, meaning He's in control and at work over our trials and at work in us, doing something in us through our trials. You see, it was through the humiliation that Joseph experienced, that he came to be exalted. And so it is with you, Christian. Our suffering comes before glory. One day, if you put your faith in Jesus, you surely will be in glory, in heaven, with God forever. But suffering comes before that day. You see, this theme of humiliation and exaltation, it's a theme repeated throughout the pages of the Bible. Humiliation that leads to exaltation was perfectly displayed in Jesus. 
He left the riches of heaven, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He left the riches of heaven and humbly came down to earth. To do what? To suffer and die. He didn't come merely to be an ethics teacher. He didn't come merely just to point you to a way of inspiration. He didn't merely come just to show you how to live a better and more successful life. He came to suffer and die. He came to humble himself to the point of death on the cross, where he laid down his life willingly and paid the penalty for the sins of anyone who would turn and believe in Jesus. God showed that his his sacrifice on the cross and paying for sin was acceptable because three days later he raised Jesus from the dead. And new life and forgiveness of sins is available to anyone today, anywhere of any nation who would repent of their sins, meaning change your mind about your sin against God. Agree with him in his word that your sin against him is an offense against him, that you can't possibly repay the debt you owe him. And turn away from that sin by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. For those who put your faith in Jesus, we have the hope of this. God is always with us. God is always for us. God will never stop doing good to us until we're finally with Him in glory. And in that, we rejoice. Brothers and sisters, may we remember that God's providence is the power behind His promises. And His providence produces patience and perseverance in our lives. May we turn to Him and ask Him for patience and perseverance. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, we pray that you would lift our eyes up above our circumstances, above this present world, above our worldly goods. Lord, we pray that we would lift, look above all of that, lift our eyes up to you to see how much you provided for us and loved us in your son Jesus and that we would trust in him, this gift that can never be taken away, the gift of knowing you through your son Jesus. And Lord, we pray whatever trials we're experiencing right now, Lord, we pray especially for those who come into this time and they're mourning, they're grieving, they've experienced loss recently. We pray you'd be with them and remind them of hope. We pray that you'd be with all of us, Lord, and give us patience, Lord, and supply us with the perseverance we need to continue worshiping, to continue serving, to continue trusting you. We ask for the grace to trust you more in Jesus' name. Amen.